This is JAMDA on the go. Your review of the content featured in JAMDA, the research-focused monthly journal of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. For a limited time, AMDA's new pocket guide, Parkinson's Disease and Psychosis in the Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Setting, is free when you download the AMDA app. The pocket guide highlights key information needed to recognize, assess, treat, and monitor people with Parkinson's disease in the PALTC setting. It also includes a special focus on Parkinson's disease psychosis. Download the AMDA app to access the new pocket guide today. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host for Jammed On The Go, Dr. Wayne Saltzman. Welcome to Jammed On The Go. We'll be talking about quality improvement targets and strategies for geriatric medicine and long-term care as we discuss a number of articles from the October 2021 issue of JAMDA, the Journal of the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. As always, speaking with us is JAMDA co-editor-in-chief, Dr. Philip Sloan, and associate editor, Dr. Mallory Brown. Dr. Sloan is a family physician and geriatrician with a master's degree in public health. He is the Elizabeth and Oscar Goodwin Distinguished Professor of Family Medicine and Geriatrics at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and co-director for the program on aging, disability, and long-term care at the Cecil G. Shep Center for Health Services Research. Dr. Brown is also a family physician and geriatrician at the University of North Carolina, where she is an associate professor of family medicine and director of the residency training program. Drs. Brown and Sloan, welcome back to JAMDA On The Go. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. Great to be here. So what are the articles that we'll be talking about today from the October 2021 issue of JAMDA? Well, we're taking a tangential spin at quality improvement, you know, looking at three Mm. clinical areas that are challenging and therefore often have room for improvement. And we'll discuss strategies that individual medical directors and providers might use to make targeted changes. Quality improvement and medical directorship, that sounds like peanut butter and chocolate. So let's, uh, let's, let's talk about our first article, an international consensus list of potentially clinically significant drug-to-drug interactions in older people. Dr. Brown, um, lead us through this article. Sure. So <clears throat> this article presents the results of a very, I think, um, extensive international effort to identify drug interactions that were particularly significant when taken into clinical context. Hmm. So that sounds like a good idea. Um, Many electronic systems have prompts that will essentially spit out potential interaction nearly every time I write a new prescription on a geriatric patient. (laughs) Uh, Can this article help my decision-making? And if so, how? I feel the same way about that (laughs) um, interaction every time. So, you know, perhaps this article can help. Um, The author set out to establish a list of potentially clinically significant drug-drug interactions in folks over 65. Based on a literature review, 154 drug-drug interactions were identified and utilized to produce a preliminary list of potentially clinically significant interactions. 
From there, the team took it a step further. They had a multidisciplinary expert panel made up of 29 geriatricians and pharmacists who completed a two-round online Delphi survey followed by a consensus meeting validating a final list. For each drug-drug interaction in the first two rounds, experts were asked to score the severity of potential harm on a five-point Likert-type scale. Drug-drug interactions were directly included on the final list if the median score was four, which was considered a major um, interaction, or a five, catastrophic. Drug-drug interactions with a median score of three, being only a moderate issue, were discussed at a consensus meeting and included if 75% of the participants voted for inclusion in that final round. So in the end, 66 clinically significant drug-drug interactions were identified. As one might presume, drugs with effects on the central nervous system, on the cardiovascular system, or those utilized as antithrombotics were most concerning. Mm -hmm. The final list, which can be seen in table two of this article, is in my opinion, very well done. It includes not only the interaction, but also information on the mechanism of the interaction, the potential harm, and the management of which included recommendations for treatment modification in about three quarters of the interactions. As a clinician, and even more so as a clinician educator, um, I really thought that this article resonated with me and, and my future practice. I lecture about deprescribing at least annually to our resident physicians and stress over and over the importance of drug-drug interactions. So I appreciate the thoroughness of the work that was done here and the final recommendations they set forth. I'll certainly be um, printing this off and actually carrying a paper copy close by to refer back to in my practice as well as bookmarking the article for the future. I love this article too. And one of the things is if you actually look through it, you don't have 66 drugs that you have to think about. Mm -hmm. It's really a much smaller number. And um, that that's tremendously refreshing. I was just going to say, you know, uh, with many electronic medical records, you know, you get this this banner that goes across, and people get get banner burnout. And uh, I'm, um, it, it would be very interesting, given what this article has said, and actually what you just said, Doctor Sloan, if there was a way to to highlight, the, you know, the the musts, so to take those take those off the table altogether for being a concern. Great, great discussion. So let's go to our next article, uh, Uncontrolled Pain and Risk for Depression and Behavioral Symptoms in Residents with uh, Dementia. Uh, Dr. Sloan, what is this paper about? Well, it's really about pain identification and management in persons with dementia. You know, I mean, it doesn't really, it's got data, but it's really about you know, what can we learn? So for all of our listeners who are out there in the long-term care setting, who are um, getting phone calls at eight o'clock at night that Mrs. Smith is, is now uh, agitated and out of the, out of the blue. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, we're always thinking about pain and really having a, a, a difficult time in, in understanding how to assess pain in this population. So, so what can this, paper do for our listeners and our readers of uh, JAMDA? Well, let me start out by saying that pain is just so hard to detect in people with dementia. 
Oh, we yeah. did. I was part of a big study of you know pain, pain assessment, pain interventions, and dementia that we did with the folks from Oregon. And our interventionist was probably one of the most skilled, experienced clinicians that I've ever worked with. And she said to me afterwards, she said, "I still don't know if I can tell whether somebody's in pain or not." Yeah. And so that's my caveat. But this, you know, let me talk about this study a little bit. It was a retrospective analysis of a large sample of nursing home residents, and it was all, you know, secondary data, MDS and Medicare data. But it was a huge sample, and it was very targeted. It was people who had a a diagnosis of dementia and a diagnosis of chronic pain. So, you know, they didn't have cancer and were not in hospice, but just dementia and chronic pain, and they said, okay, what's going on with them and how do their treatment relate to depressive symptoms and behavioral symptoms. So I want to take a little bit of time and talk about the MDS because they convinced me that the MDS does a lot better job than I had thought Mm. in measuring these issues. And that's probably my main point. Um, Let's start out with um, how they measured pain. Okay. MDS 3.0 has nursing assessments of pain. They have three different ways to assess it. The first one is to ask the resident on a scale of zero to 10, how much pain they've had in the past. What was the worst pain they had in the last five days? If the resident has trouble with that, then they just say, okay, you know, tell me, was it none, mild, moderate, or severe? <laughs> the worst pain you had in the past five days. And if that doesn't work, or if the person's non-verbal, then they have a very specific measure of nonverbal pain indicators that they go over with the staff who know them well. You know, things like moaning, grimacing, facial expressions, certain body postures in the previous five days. And then they excluded residents with missing pain values. So we have a pretty selected sample where we have decent measures. Then they discovered, I mean, they, they studied as outcomes depression and behavioral symptoms. And once again, they had decent measures. The depression was PHQ-9, but they also had a nonverbal version of the PHQ-9. And behavioral symptoms, they used the standardized checklist from staff, and those things have been validated, you know, ad nauseum, basically. So they did this longitudinal analysis, and they found a modest but highly significant association between poor pain control in both depression and behavioral symptoms. Adjusted odds ratios were modest, but they were important. When results were stratified for dementia severity, they found that poor pain control was especially strongly related to depression in persons with mild and moderate dementia. But in contrast, poor pain control was most strongly linked to behavioral symptoms in persons with severe dementia. Mm -hmm. So basically, they don't control their pain, they get depressed if they're mild, they get, they act out and get agitated if they're severe. So uh, let me go on and talk about the two lessons I see, and then I'll leave it up, open it to the two of you for comments. First lesson, I think it's a good idea to become familiar with the MDS assessments of pain, depression, behavioral symptoms, because the MDS uses some of the most valid, reliable measures out there. And I mean, it's free, it's there in front of you. Um, they've got quarterly measures, you know, it seems to me it's worth considering setting up a mechanism by which the MDS coordinator extracts these and perhaps other items for the clinician 
making them available as soon as they've been completed, you know, rather than having to go through that whole MDS, which of course I don't do. And potentially, you know, for quality improvement, they could be used as outcome measures, which are measured every three months. The second lesson is about pain assessment and treatment in persons with dementia. We all know how difficult it is to detect pain in persons with dementia. Um, still, even with data that must have some real limitations, like in this study, it showed significant relationship between pain and behavioral outcomes in persons with dementia. So clinicians should at minimum look for and treat pain, especially in people who have you know, chronic pain diagnosis, and especially if they show behavioral symptoms or resist care and stuff like that. So given that the MDS provides standardized measures, they seem to be pretty decent, they're associated with outcomes, perhaps we have readily available measures for quality monitoring and improvement. That's what I think of this. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, you know, so I, I have three comments. One, you learn uh, in geriatrics fellowship about the importance of MDS and how the and how the the MDS um, really served uh, to provide data that has led us um, understand um, many, many, many different things in um, uh, in long-term care has really dictated research in long-term care. So um, I'm not surprised about the MDS uh, being a focal point once again, because I'm kind of used to that, but I do very much appreciate the um, the advice uh, to review the MDS. But you know, my second comment is that uh, even though it's a standardized process, I have noted in my humble career a variability of the persons administering this standardized mm -hmm. process. Mm -hmm. So I, um, I would be, uh, I, I would raise that. Um, and then my my third comment is that once again, in my in my humble experience as a practitioner. Um, uh, I thought of the mantra that, you know, that that, um, that at least I heard many, many years ago when it was um, uh, the question of, uh, of dementia versus depression. Um, and, you know, the, the mantra was if you're concerned, questioning, that's when we were talking about pseudo dementia, which really don't, which we don't talk about anymore. But when it's dementia versus depression, treat the depression. So analogously, when you have someone who fits these criteria, dementia with a history of chronic pain, and now these um, these adverse behaviors which are coming out of nowhere or just at, you know, whatever mm -hmm. that may be, and you're thinking, is this pain? Try to treat it and see if uh, and see if it makes if it makes a difference. And so that has been what I have used in my uh, in my career. I, I don't know. I don't know, Mallory, what you think about uh, about that. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a piece of me that really likes the work that's shown here because it's trying to standardize and simplify something that can be so amorphous and difficult to like, to just really like put our hands on because mm -hmm. um, it's hard. It's so hard to treat folks that may have pain in the setting of dementia, may have depression in the setting of dementia, which is it? What's the chicken? What's the egg? Mm -hmm. Um so I like the work that's shown here. I, I agree with a lot of the things you're saying about the subjectivity, perhaps, of 
an objective measure that could be the MDS. Um, but I, I do really like the clear um, and obvious significant relationships that they were able to show. And it'll be a reminder to me um, moving forward again to really be thinking about how pain and depression are linked um, and pain and behavioral outcomes. I mean, what's the, you know, how harmful it is, is it to treat a patient with Tylenol for a brief period of time to see if that can help exactly. in resolving exactly. some of those behaviors. Exactly, exactly. And now a word from our sponsor, U.S. Post-Acute Care. Let's talk for a minute about goals of care conversations. Now more than ever, post-acute clinicians should initiate these discussions with their patients. At U.S. Post-Acute Care, our clinical team is committed to regular goals of care conversations with each seriously ill patient. We help our patients to think through their goals and express what's most important to them. Now we can develop a care plan that aligns with their goals and their values. Using a technique first developed by Ariadne Labs, these structured conversations have shown meaningful improvements in the quality, cost, and effectiveness of care. Our chief medical officer, Dr. Kevin Henning, is highly committed to making the goals of care conversation a foundation of effective care for our clinical team. At US Post-Acute Care, that's what we think. Now we'd like to know what you think. You can reach us at uspostacutecare.com or on LinkedIn, and Dr. Henning will be happy to respond. Thanks for listening. Well, let's move on to our next article. Effects of Unstructured Mobility Programs in Older Hospitalized General Medicine Patients, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. So the topic is mobility in the hospital, and the paper is a systematic review and meta-analysis. Dr. Brown, tell us about this paper and what lessons it provides um, for, for a geriatric practice or really any practice. Sure. I think we're um, across the board often encouraging our patients to keep moving one way or another. Just last week, I saw a gentleman who had been admitted to a higher level of care secondary to the pain that he was experiencing, which was impacting his mobility, and in turn required um, at his 90 plus years of age, some physical therapy and occupational therapy intervention to get him back to his home safely. I think it's easy to agree and to recommend mobility interventions because we've seen them shown to mitigate functional mm. decline mm. in various clinical populations and settings. Right. Um, unfortunately, though, the effects of such interventions have not been extensively studied in our hospitalized older adults. So this particular study aims to determine the effects of mobility programs on physical activity, physical function, length of stay, and quality of life in older patients admitted to a general medicine service. The authors completed a systematic review and meta-analysis, including studies assessing the effects of mobility programs compared to what would be considered usual care in the hospital. 13 studies were ultimately included per eligibility criteria that they developed. Interventions mostly included ambulation and staff patient and or caregiver education. Mobility interventions had a moderate effect on physical activity, a non-significant effect on length of stay, both which favored mobility. The data also supported improvement in physical function and no increase in adverse events with mobility interventions. 
The quality of the evidence, re evidence reviewed here was fairly low, but what it supports makes a lot of good common sense to me. Um, the work show, seems important to back up the e efforts to get patients up, out of bed, and moving. More work does need to be done on inpatients to increase the evidence, but this paper is a good starting place for supporting what most of us geriatricians are already doing, which mm. is encouraging folks to get up and get moving, mm. and mm. it helps to support that effort with other staff as we discuss it um, with nurses and CMAs and other folks that can get people up and going in the hospital. Uh, uh, this paper resonates with me. Um, uh, when uh, when I round in the hospital or when I was uh, when I do the inpatient geriatric service um, and I see the word bed bound, yes. um, I have um, uh, I automatically come back and I you know and I with specific reasons why someone needs to be bed bound and actually they there are very few reasons. Um, and, you know, people are astounded when, you know, when you say things like if you, if you make an older adult bed bound, the muscle mass loss per day is tremendous and the functional and cognitive decline, which then proceeds is also tremendous. And so, um, you know, my hospital also has a niche program, you know, the, the nursing program for hospitalized uh, uh, older adults. And so we do have policies in place to keep people moving um, as much as possible who are, who are hospitalized. But, uh, but no, this is an per ongoing pervasive uh, issue, which I, I think really does need to be addressed more fully. I, I don't know what the two of you think. Well, to be honest, Wayne, I just totally resonate with that. You know, anyone who does work in the hospital should really advocate for policies and procedures that get people up. Because hmm. there's so much, you know, the evidence may be a little bit fuzzy, but we all know what matters. We all know what matters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So our last paper is uh, somewhat different. Uh, it, entitled a smart case review a model for successful remote medical direction and enhanced nursing home quality improvement so it's by dr stephen levinson uh who is um a a former uh, society president he is a senior clinician he specializes in many different areas of geriatric care with decades of experience uh in the nursing facility um, and as a medical director. Um, the topic is a model for successful remote direction and enhanced nursing home quality improvement. Dr. Sloan, tell us a little bit more about this paper. Well, let me start by saying that if you're a medical director who wants to spend as little time as possible being medical director, this is not for you. You know, it's and the problem, you know, it, it starts out by identifying the problem um, as you know, that traditional quality improvement efforts don't improve overall care and decision-making. I'll be honest, that resonates with me. You know, to me, so much quality improvement is like bean counting, you know. It does, it focuses on a few beans and ignores the whole garden. You know, we all, we're all familiar with this. You know, for example, you know, my setting right now is really focusing on screening for depression due to the PHQ-2 and then maybe the PHQ-9. Mm -hmm. And the question is, does that really 
Is that really the best use of an experienced clinician or medical director to focus on that kind of thing? So Dr. Levinson thinks it's not. He thinks the role of a medical director is to use his or her experience and expertise to increase the problem-solving abilities of the nursing home interdisciplinary team by working with the IDT around complex cases. It's basically being teacher, trainer, helping others be able to work at the top of their um, capability. So, but the caveat is this process takes quite a lot of time. So it assumes the medical director really has an investment in improving care processes. I refer to this as kind of engaged medical director philosophy. Here's how it works. First step, you identify a clinical problem that the IDT identifies as important for your facility. And you have data to back it up. You know, it could be a clinical issue such as recurrent falls. You know, you got a lot of them or weight loss, a lot of people with weight loss. It has to be a lot of people with it. Mm. Bayer to thrive or difficult to control behavioral symptoms. Or it can be a medication treatment issue such as polypharmacy or medical, not multiple medications on the beers list, you know, high antibiotic use. Whatever it is, you know, it affects a lot of people and has important um, implications in terms of outcomes. It could be an ethical issue, you know, such as obtaining or in, interpreting advanced directives, you know, whatever the facility leaders think needs work. Now, the, here's where the work comes, you know, the medical director's point. The next step is for the medical director to review cases in detail with the IDT. They pick out the cases, the IDT presents the case, and the discussion led by the medical director is expansive. You know, it takes 10 to 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, it peels the onion Exploring the differential diagnoses, delves into historical and psychosocial issues, does not make assumptions. Basically, it's an in-depth review by highly experienced clinicians. IDT members such as nurses, advanced practice clinicians, and social workers rarely, if ever, have a chance to think this deeply about a case. It's basically case-based staff education. But it goes beyond that. After reviewing and making notes on 10 to 20 cases, most likely over several months, the IDT with the guidance of the medical director then looks for themes about facility and practitioner performance and practices related to the problem being evaluated. Rather than just saying, oh, I think it's because of this, they really use the cases you know, and the reviews to identify what's really going on. Um, then they can identify and implement specific interventions and measures to track their success. So they identify such things which are usually missed, like diagnostic quality, you know, erroneous decision-making, or cognitive biases. So in summary, it's a highly ambitious and in some ways iconoclastic approach to quality improvement. So what I wonder, will it play in Peoria? <laughs> well, you know, uh, so um, I... I read this article um, and I actually read it twice. Mm-hmm. So um, this this just mirrors the the deep devotion that Dr. Levinson has to the medical director role and a really really how the interdisciplinary team you know can be taken to the limits. You know, for me, when I thought about the um, our group meetings and how to make the most of them. We were doing root cause analyses on mm-hmm. on cases, which essentially is what this is 
um, exponentially, kind of, you know, in finding what the what were the common themes and how could we address the common themes. And mm-hmm. so, a root cause analysis, I think, could work. This would take a lot of time and a lot of dedication, and I. I don't know if it would play out for um, many of the facilities that, you know, have uh, medical directors that may not be as, as involved. Mm-hmm. Or that skilled. Yeah. Because yeah. you really have to, you know, and the nice thing is, you know, for those of us who are senior, you've been around for a long time, we do know a lot and we've seen a lot. And the question is, can we use it? I mean, gosh, I'm teaching every day. you know and i know the two of you are and i know our listeners and our readers of jamda are 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 as well this is a a level of um uh you know i I think this is a level of commitment that may just be the brass ring of medical of medical directorship so i think it's i think it's something that we should try to continue to to reach for um but i guess i have to ask the question is um is uh you know great the enemy of good yeah 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 it's it it on reading this i thought gosh you know would i really do this (laughs) you know and once again it's focusing on one area in a with an incredible amount of effort um but i love the idea because i hate bean pounding yeah no, and, I, and um, you know, I love how Dr. Levinson challenges us to be better. So I definitely appreciate that. Wow. Uh, you know, um, I, I want to take a bit of a pause here and, um, and just say uh, to Dr. Sloan and Dr. Brown, these issues are amazing. I... The, the information, the information that's actionable or thought-provoking that, that the two of you and, uh, and obviously, you know, Dr. Zimmerman and the other editors are putting together is really incredible. And I, I just felt it important to tell you that. Well, thank you. You know, just the, the care of older people is complicated. Mm. And, you know, as you develop expertise in it, you're just in awe that you can do anything useful, you know. But we do, and we try, and we know we're being useful. Well, bravo. I also think it's a testament to all of the amazing work that's being done and sent into the, to the journal for review. So mm-hmm. it's really incredible, the work that's being done across the world um, in the care of older adults and in long-term care. Yes, wow. thank you to everyone. I, I love that, Dr. Brown. It's it's the world that is being reflected in Jamda. Mm-hmm. I just think that's I think that's awesome. Well, uh, under the leadership of co-editors in chief, Drs. Philip Sloan and Cheryl Zimmerman, and with the support of editors like Dr. Mallory Brown and the others, the Journal of the American Medical Director Association continues to be an impactful resource in post-acute and long-term care and beyond. Take a look at the October 2021 issue. Dr. Sloan and Dr. Brown, again, thank you for spending your time with Jamda on the go. Thank you. Mm-hmm. References for this podcast can be found at www.jamda.com 
Until next time, I'm Dr. Wayne Saltzman for Jamda On The Go. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. If you are a physician and interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, go to our new learning management system at apex.paltc.org. Click on podcast and follow the link to this latest episode. Thank you.